shall come forth from forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Some of you will have heard me refer before to a, a student some years ago raising a question. It was a bit of a flippant sort of question, him saying, how do the Jews deal with the fact that God didn't keep his promise? It would have applied to the Jews. It would have applied to the Christians as well. And well, what promise are we talking about? Well, he promised that David would have a dynasty, that there would always be a Davidic king on the throne in Israel. And where is that? God didn't follow through. How do they deal with that? And as I'm inclined to do, I didn't have just one simple answer. I was inclined to think about all that's going on in this and think first about the fact that the promise isn't quite so straightforward as that. That it's not simply one upon the throne. That there are also very clear words about being faithful and being unfaithful and their consequences of unfaithfulness. God does assure his servant David that he won't take his mercy away from him like he took it away from Saul. But he doesn't say that there won't be consequences. On the contrary, he says there will be. If your son, who will be the one who builds the temple, if he turns away from me, I will punish him with the rod of men. That those who follow him, there's a very clear word that the gifts that God gives to them will be mitigated somewhat by how well they obey his word, how committed they are in their faithfulness. And of course, if you follow through the history of of Israel, and you see after Solomon, to whom the promises were being given, who appeared to be that promised son of David, well, there's a divided kingdom. At the end of his reign, Solomon is apostate. He's turned away. He's moved even into the realm of child sacrifice. And the kingdom is torn in true. But there is a line that's preserved, the Davidic line, the line that is there, the descendants of Solomon. God is merciful even though many of the kings are not faithful. But the time goes by and we come to that point of the exile where finally the consequences are much more severe. And the understanding, though, is that there comes a time where you cut things off at the ground, where there's a need for a severe pruning. But if you remember, even as they were carried off into exile, there is a word that this is a, a time of chastening. This is a, a time of, of pruning of the people. It's for a period of time, and God will move on in his promises. I was inclined to move us back into the prophet Isaiah and to the passage that we read a little earlier about the stump coming out of the uh, about the shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse, and even to put that in the context of Isaiah 6 and the calling of Isaiah. Because there we're reminded that when God gives the gift of that life that he has, well, a lot of the life is below the surface at times. And there are the times we know with any plants that we're growing anyway that there can be a cutting off at the ground, but it doesn't mean that the root is dead. 
and often there's a lot more going on below the ground. You go back into Isaiah 6, the prophet has his rather outstanding call, and he comes before the Lord with his new sense of vocation and looks for what he's to do. He's told he's to speak God's word, but he is then told that he's going to speak, but it's not going to be received. People are going to see, but they'll close their eyes. They're going to stop up their ears and harden their hearts, which doesn't sound like a really encouraging opportunity. And you get out of the prophet that cry of, How long, O Lord? How long? You know, how is this going to go on? I'm not going to get a reception. How long do I have to beat on the doors? And the response is, until cities are laid waste. There's a a reckoning that is coming. There is a cutting down of all of the things that my people are glorying in. It's going to be like when a tree is cut down and it leaves just the stump in the ground. Depends on your translation how that one comes out, but then... The chapter ends with just the intriguing line, the holy seed is the stump. All the things that they trusted in, all of the the worldly show is taken away. All the things that in fact led them away from God is taken away. To that point where everything seems to be gone, but God has not abandoned them. He has not taken away His mercy. The life is there in the stump. And that's where when you pick up Isaiah 11 and you see the shoot coming out from the stump, out from the stem of Jesse, there's a sense of that hope and the connection back in. Of course, if you're following along in the Hebrew, you might say, well, there's a a different word for the the stump or the the trunk of the tree back in chapter 6 from what we've got in chapter 11. And... I usually throw the Hebrew words around, but it doesn't matter tonight. My brain is kind of tired. They're comparable terms. And in some ways, the the earlier term that's used in Isaiah 6 is one that, that would be the older stump that is there. Yes, it's lively in the ground. The life is in the roots. The other term is often of a more pliable state of things. There's a little more visible liveliness. But in either case, it's drawing from the roots. I've always been struck in that word that in Isaiah 11, that this messianic shoot that comes out, or the rod, as you might hear it, that it comes not from the stump of David, but from that of Jesse. You might have in mind that Jesse is the father of David. There's always the sense that this goes back further than those promises to David. That God is honoring what he has promised from the early stages, from the very beginning. Of course, when you hear the language of the seed, the holy seed, you ought to be cast back right into the garden in the time of the fall. That kind of backhanded promise that is there to the woman. Backhanded because it's in the curse on the serpent looking ahead to the seed of the woman who will one day crush the head of the serpent's seed, though it will bruise his heel. A promise that goes back right to the beginning. God hasn't failed to keep his promise. 
We don't see the visible sign of it, but he's very much at work. Interestingly enough, some of the the prophecies that we have about the Messiah, the king of David's line, the shepherd king, the priestly king, actually come during the period of exile when they're removed from Jerusalem, where the priesthood has been taken away, the temple has been destroyed. Jeremiah, who's writing in the time of the exile, but Zechariah, who's there in the time when they're beginning to come back out of their exile. Both of them speak about this Davidic king. Both of them talk about a righteous branch that God will raise up. Isaiah speaks of this branch that will come out of the root of Jesse. And now again, my Hebrew scholars, I'm among us will be looking back and saying, ah, yes, but doesn't Isaiah use a different word for a branch from Jeremiah and Zechariah? They're using semach. And over in Isaiah, he's using netzah. Well, yeah. They carry the same impact. Interesting that Zechariah and Jeremiah, writing in comparable period, out of a comparable background, will use the same term. Isaiah is many years earlier. There's something interesting even then in thinking about about his term. It points us in the same direction. Years ago, I mean, we know that both of these point to that Messiah who is to be raised up, the king of David's line, as I say, the shepherd king, the priestly king, the one who will be raised up of that stock of David back into the root of Jesse. I was reading a number of years back uh, in St. Jerome. What you know of Jerome, back into the 4th century, uh, we associate him with the translation in the Vulgate, the the Latin, well, the drawing together of the old Latin manuscripts and and a new translation that was a standard. Jerome was a, a marvelous linguistic scholar. And he was working on these texts along the line. There's a a passage in St. Matthew's Gospel that often confounds commentators. Matthew's often accused of proof texting. He draws passages, he draws verses from the Old Testament, they will say, that seem to fit his situation. And some commentators will say, well, that's got nothing to do with what he's talking about. Out of Egypt, I called, have I called my son? In Hosea, what's that got to do with Jesus being down in Egypt after he's fled Bethlehem and being brought up. Well, I think it has something to do with it, but the idea of proof texting is kind of a modern idea that you get out your Strong's Concordance or whatever and you go back. Maybe you don't use Strong's. You sort of need to know the King James Version and some of your heads may be there. I, Not everybody's is, but You go and you find chapter and verse, and you pluck out something that seems to fit. Well, they didn't have chapter and verse. They were dealing generally with the unrolling of the scroll. And my sense regularly, when Matthew or one of the New Testament writers refers back, it's, here's the point you begin on the scroll. Read from here, read what's around it, get it in context. And often something much fuller opens up then. 
I could spend a lot more time with that, and I know on other occasions I have, but in this case, it's after they've returned. They fled Bethlehem before King Herod's attempt to destroy the Messiah. They've gone down into Egypt, in fact, and out of Egypt, I called my son, comes into that. Um, a word that I think has to do with Jesus actually doing something that Abraham did, which is kind of recapitulating the way, gathering up the way that the descendants will follow in the case of Abraham. He, in a time of famine, he's in the prom- what will be the promised land. He goes down into Egypt and is drawn back up. He traces the route that his descendants will follow. Jesus who is the one who is gathering up and redeeming the whole story, goes down into Egypt. The connection with Hosea is a real one. After they've returned, we're told that because of the political situation that they end up settling in Nazareth, and therefore he shall be called a Nazarene. But we're told that that was to fulfill what was spoken in the prophets except commentators trip over themselves trying to find, well, where in the prophets does it say that? And some of them connect it with the Nazarite. It makes sense if he lived in Nazareth that you might call him a Nazarene, but where did the prophets say that? Well, I was reading St. Jerome, and lo and behold, matter-of-fact fashion, he says, well, it's Isaiah, it's Isaiah 11. It's there where he talks about him as the Netzar. But that's actually the root of the name Nazareth, that it's because he's the branch. It's actually a way of connecting back into that root of Jesse, the promises of God. It's showing in all of this that he is, in fact, the one who's fulfilling all of the promise, who is the true Messiah who's gathering up God's redemption of his people. There's life in the roots. God hasn't forgotten his promise. He hasn't failed to deliver. Often his way of doing things and his timing is not what we expect or sometimes demand. The life is there in the roots. And in keeping with that, to draw in from those words of St. Paul tonight, and to think about things going on below the surface and in the roots. St. Paul, when he's writing about the work of the Spirit and the gift of God, the fulfillment of his promise, talks about something that the whole creation knows. I'm talking again lately about this whole business of the things that we know because we've been created in God's image and likeness, even when we deny them that whole business of the natural law that's at work. But Paul says that even in what we think is at times inanimate creation or the insensate creation, it's not rational, and yet it knows. It knows what it was created for. It knows that this state of disintegration in the world, this state of decay, is not the way that it was meant to be. There is planted in the whole created order this hope of God and the confidence that he will fulfill his promises. And sometimes it sounds a little fanciful to be saying that it's there in all the created order around us. 
And yet, Jesus himself, did he not say when the crowds were shouting his praises, when the children were lauding him as he came into town, and the authorities said, would you tell them to be quiet? They're going to cause some problems with the Roman authorities. Would you tell them to be quiet? Jesus said, I tell you that if they were silent, the very stones themselves would cry out. Which sounds a funny thought in its way. I mean, how do stones cry out? And yet go back through Scripture. Read Psalm 19 again. Read about that witness that comes from the created order. The heavens declare the glory of God. You know, they have no voice, and yet their sound goes out through all the the world. Read one of the most delightful psalms, number 114, that details the people coming out of bondage in Egypt. And it's, it's kind of a children's tale almost. It's when Israel came out of Egypt. The, it talks about the hills jumping like, like rams and the little hills like young sheep. The sea beholding what was happening and fleeing. You know, what ailed you, O sea, that you fled? O hills that you jumped about like that? Well, on one hand, it seems a fanciful story, and yet, in keeping with the words of Jesus, there's that sense that there's something so deep in what God has made that knows what it was made for, that when that's being denied, well, it pushes against it. When it gets glimpses, of the freedom that God is giving, the opening of the way for his children, that the whole creation is affected. I've actually heard stories come out over the years of places where there's been real renewal within the people, spiritual renewal where there have been effects on on the landscape round about. St. Paul says that there's this groaning it's kind of like those, those pangs of childbirth. The reminder that it's not the sense that this is moving towards destruction, but the pain that comes when you're getting ready for a new birth. You know it's necessary, but it's a constructive pain, a moving forward. One of the ancient commentators, and looking at Paul's words here, said it's like he's saying to his fellow Christians, The creation is like this. It's so excited. It's groaning with this depth. How much more ought we to be doing that? How much more excited ought we to be about the things God is doing? We to whom have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. A lovely image. The first fruits you bring in, the best off the top of the harvest, a sign that, a promise, a pledge that you'll bring the full tithes in their due time. But you know that the giving of the tithes is always a promise to God that you understand the whole belongs to Him. The tithes are just a a sign of that. God gives the first fruits of His Spirit. Gives us that gift, that pledge, the beginning of His kingdom at work. Reminding us that we're not made for this disintegration. We're not made for this decay. We're not made to live the way so much of our world comes to live. We're not made for these things. Every now and again, entering into some things of spiritual warfare, I 
Now, on the one hand, I'm going to say, you who belong to Christ, you have been baptized into him, you who know him as Lord, you need to be able to say to the devil, you don't have any right in my life. Even in those times when I've sinned, even in those times where I seem to have opened doors, you still don't have any right here. You think you do, and you act as though you do, but you don't. But the more I think about it, the more I think that's a word not just for believers, because really all that those whom Jesus has made, all of those that God has made in his image and likeness, were made for life with him. The devil has no right in any human life. We open the doors, we give him those openings, but he doesn't really have the right. And there are times when all of us need to be prepared to stand up and declare that. But it's not just pushing him out. It's letting ourselves be gathered into the life for which we were created. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit was to bring life from the dead. To take a disparate band of followers of Jesus and to bring them together as the body of Christ. To let us be what we were created to be, growing up into the fullness of of our head who is Jesus Christ. And there a final thought for tonight. Just thinking about how he wants to indwell our lives. It's not in the readings that we had, but the fullness of that promise Paul will talk about elsewhere. First Corinthians chapter 6 especially, he speaks about the body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Not just an anointing from God, not just a holy visitor who comes to speak to us of the things of God, to give us some encouragement, but one who comes to dwell in what is his temple. And if it's his temple, it belongs to him. It's dedicated to him. It's the place where he's to be honored and worshipped, where his will is to be first and foremost. I've always enjoyed the fact that Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are a temple? Not your spirit, not just your heart, not your soul, but... The incarnate Lord wants to be alive and indwelling in your bodies, in how you live your lives. I'm really conscious that none of us does that as well as we might. We're not such perfect vessels. We're earthen vessels. But the call to have that longing within, to know that he has poured out the gift to that end, that he might make us wholly his own, not just to visit us, not just to bless us, but to make us his holy temples that we might grow up to be the fullness of what we were created to be. A long ways from the question perhaps of how it was that God didn't keep his promise, but I'm convinced that he did. There are those times when again, above the surface, we don't see that that growth. In fact, sometimes what we're building above the surface is the very thing that needs to be cut down that we get back into those roots. We let him bring up the life that he desires for us. That the growth would be the lasting and the eternal growth, not just the things that abide in this world. God is eternally faithful to his promises. The life is in the root. 
We can only be rooted in Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit, by the life that he gives us. May we give ourselves wholly to his reign this day and each day until that day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea.